Good morning. Grace and peace to each of you here today. It's been a blessing so far to fellowship one with another. And I sense that God is doing a spiritual work in our day. I sense the prayers of the saints for one another. And it's a good thing that we have the support of one another in praying for each other that we faint not by the way. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. I don't know how often or much you think about contending for the glory of God in your life. Or how much you may have an interest in astronomy or the heavens. But I have found it to be of some enjoyment lately to take some time and spend time after the day is done and the family is settled down in bed and go out and observe the heavens and see the stars and just to contemplate what the Bible says that indeed the heavens declare the glory of God. You know, doctrine has a good place in our lives. Teaching, instruction, they are all good. But sometimes I think there's a benefit to just worship the Lord and to bask in his glory and to see his glory, much as Moses contended with God. He said, show me thy glory, almost in a beseeching sort of way. And the words of a song um, I've probably mentioned this before, but it says, With ready feet I love to appear among thy saints and seek thy face. Oft have I seen thy glory there and felt the power of sovereign grace. I don't know if, <clears throat> if you have that anticipation when you assemble to see the glory of God but it's something we need in our day. And as the lesson brought forth this morning, in the case of Gideon, it was in the midst of worshiping God and, and bringing himself to that place where God had a hand in his life with confirmations and signs and wonders. And the comment was made in our, in our class that through worship he arrived at the perspective he needed for that moment and the power and the grace that came from worshiping God and seeing his glory and meditating on those things. For a message today, my mind went back to last Sunday. We had a, a sermon, Brother Jonathan Good brought us a sermon here 
on Daniel in the lion's den, on the faithful life of Daniel shown in that account. And we rejoice at the deliverance of Daniel and others in the book of Daniel, those stories. And in the book of Esther and throughout the Bible, many of God's people who experienced an earthly deliverance and an escape from harm. A supernatural favor that God bestowed upon them. And we like that. We enjoy seeing that. And we celebrate those moments. But as we study church history, and as we study the Bible, we soon see that not all escaped earthly harm. Especially in light of Hebrews 11. And I'm going to draw a few thoughts from Hebrews chapter 11. And while there were, yes, there were many who through faith, it says they did great things, they subdued kingdoms, they wrought righteousness, they obtained promises. I thought of that, obtaining a promise through faith. You know, maybe we see the promises of God and we take it for granted and we enjoy it. But do we realize that it's through faith that we obtain that promise? It is there for those who exercise their faith in that promise and not take it for granted. They stopped the mouth of lions. They waxed valiant in fight, in battles. They turned to flight the armies of the aliens and received their dead back to life again. But others were tortured. Others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings. Others had bonds and imprisonments. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword and wandered about afflicted, tormented, destitute. Where was God in those cases? Think about it. We don't celebrate what we see where God maybe to us was absent. Was God really absent? You know, there's, a, uh, there's an interesting phrase in the, in the book of Hebrews. In the latter part of uh, chapter 11, verse 38. It talks about this idea of whom the world was not worthy. I don't know if you've ever thought of that phrase or... or considered what that what meaning that would carry that the world was not worthy of these people there's a commentary from Matthew Henry says this the world is not worthy of those scorned persecuted saints whom their persecutors reckon unworthy to live they are not worthy of their comfort of their example counsel or other benefits for they know not what a saint is, nor the worth of a saint, nor how to use him they hate and drive such a way as they do the offer of Christ and his grace. So in that thought, his commentary on that was directed toward the tormentors. That they were the ones not worthy, 
meaning those individuals. But my take would be maybe a little broader than that, that, that the world is not worthy, meaning the whole system of the fallen world. And that a Christian finds himself in this environment um, and God sees that, that there are those faithful who have submitted to him, who have submitted uh, to the call to live in this fallen world and to accept willingly and graciously the dangers that it would bring for us. And truly, you know, when we, when we sign up for God's program, in a way we are signing our death warrant perhaps, to the things of this world. And in a literal sense, what, what that uh, conviction or what that loyalty would bring to us, as it did to many in times past, that we may die for our faith. But God sees that, and I think he, he becomes of the impression that this person is not worthy to live in this world in which they are placed. And perhaps he may call them. Because of that, he may call them from this life. I don't know if that happens. I've wondered sometimes if that would be the case. But Hebrews 11:13 says this, these all died in faith. These all died in faith. They didn't all receive the promise. They didn't all see what they were expecting or hoping for. Their earthly experiences did not fully satisfy what their faith was or what they were persuaded of. But nonetheless, God says in um, verse 39, they all obtained a good report. They all obtained a good report. And that should be our goal, should it not, in this life. To do that before God, through faith. We may not see all the promises fulfilled. We may not see the expectations in the fullness of our faith. But by grace, we obtain a good report in the promises of God through his word and through the blood of the Lamb. In Hebrews, I see where, you know, Hebrews pretty much dispels with the, with the idea that God will always deliver the righteous from persecution in this life. And in our, in our uh, mind, we might begin to question the differing ways of which God brings about his his intervention or his choice not to intervene and it may bother us a little bit you know when we see what we think is as maybe an unequal working of God there's a song that says this is a, a, a Negro spiritual song didn't my Lord deliver Daniel and then why not every man is how the song concludes and I don't, I don't really know what that, the message of that song was trying to convey. Then why not every man? That could mean, well, see how God delivered in the past. 
take confidence in that and the Lord will deliver you in the same way. Or it could mean it is asking a genuine question, why not every man, you know? It, it leaves us hanging with that thought of unfairness. Um, children sometimes detect if something is fair or not really quick. They have a real good fairness detector. If you're a parent, you maybe realize that. Adults may be a little bit the same way in, in our thinking. And we rejoice in, in the good things of God. We contend for them. We expect them. We pray for them. You know how, how God delivered Peter from prison. But what about James? It says James was killed with the sword. And we hardly talk about that. Why didn't he deliver Stephen in the midst of that stoning? You know, Apostle Paul, he was stoned and left for dead. And as the account was given, there were brethren that stood around Paul and I suppose they were praying for him. And in the midst of that, he, he rose up. He recovered and went on about his business like nothing had ever happened. But Stephen did not experience that same deliverance. However, he saw the glory of God. He saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And he probably would not trade that experience for any earthly benefit at that point. So I thought this morning, you know, how do we reconcile some of these variations we see in the way God works? In the different forms of deliverance of God. Because it, it can impact, it can change the way we, we ask of God for things. Or our perspective and, and our hope. But I thought to mention here this morning a, a couple scriptures that I thought were um, helpful, at least in my mind, to, to reconcile the way God works in the affairs of this life. You know, we don't always need answers. That's going to be how it is, that we don't always have an answer. But I believe we can seek for perspective. There's, there's the washing of water of the word. There's that thought in scripture in which as we engage in the word of God, it gives us a foundation of perspective that I believe undergirds our need for answers. And it may even actually lead us to an answer. Let's turn to um, Philippians chapter 1. Beginning at verse 20. It says here, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Just to stop 
for a moment right there and think about that. Does your Christian experience, does your, does your spiritual experience with God ever bring you into what you would define as an earnest expectation for something or a hope? What was the, the hope or the desire that Paul had? We hope for many things. We hope in a general way to, to be saved. We desire to go to heaven. We pray that we could be faithful. We hope we can um, avoid persecution. We hope our children grow up and don't die young. But Paul's earnest hope and expectation here was that in nothing I shall be ashamed. That in, in no way be ashamed of the gospel or of anything in his life. I think that is a notable desire. Something to strive for that we do not have anything Hidden. That doesn't mean we expose everything there is about us. It's not the same as being embarrassed. You know, if someone would come and go through our belongings and discover that we had uh, some polka dot underwear or something in our, in our drawer, that's not what it's talking about, being ashamed. Of, it speaks more to the, the idea of a clear conscience before God. And if those things happen, they might be embarrassing. But it doesn't mean our conscience is violated before the Lord. And I believe that is what Paul is speaking of. It seems like this was something that, that Paul desired. And along with that, his off time, he would mention this thorn in the flesh. And there's much speculation about what that was. And my thought has been uh, recently that it may have had to do with the fact that he persecuted the church. Because he mentions very often his angst at the fact that he had done that. And he spoke of a time in the past when he was in the, Jew, in the Jews' religion. And in all that former things that how beyond measure he persecuted the church of God and wasted it. And the pain and the untimely death that he caused many of those righteous individuals at that time. And as he would consider that, I can imagine that Paul thought, well, these would have been people, men that now would have been able to help me in my calling and sharing the gospel. The Apostle Paul did not feel worthy of his apostleship. He mentioned this many times. And it was a fact that he couldn't change, that he had persecuted the church. Ephesians 3 he says, Unto me who am the less than the least of all saints. That's pretty, that's pretty low. He wasn't just the least of the apostles, he said that too, but the least of all saints. And so... As I look at Paul and this messenger of Satan that he had to contend with, in which God says, my grace is sufficient, Satan would bring to Paul's mind the fact 
that he had persecuted the church and wrought havoc in that way. And I can see that as being a burden and a hindrance and a thorn in the flesh to Paul's inner man. That in nothing I shall be ashamed, yet he held, held that goal in the forefront of his mind. And that can as well be our goal to, to be allowing God and Christ to be magnified in our, in our life, in our bodies. And Paul said, whether this be by life or by death, in verse 20 there. So why did God deliver Daniel but not every man? The answer to that may be partly found in this concept that God knows for his child that there is something better. It's actually better to depart and be with Christ in this world. If you're a Christian, if you're righteous, if you are made your calling and election sure by the grace of God, And God knows that for his children there is something better that waits in store. And if, if you as the giver realize that you have a present or a, a surprise for someone. And the expectation, the desire it is to, to give that to that person. And yet we wait for the proper time. But I know children especially, they often desire to give a gift. And they anticipate the giving of that gift to where they can hardly wait for that to happen. And oftentimes in the, in the life of my children, and it kind of tugs at your heart sometimes, they, they realize there's a person that's having a, an event or a birthday, but they don't have anything to give them, so they'll come to daddy and say, do you have anything I can give this person? They feel the need to give and the blessing that comes from that. And so we, we give them something to give to another person because they realize they don't have anything in their own power to bring that about. But God desires to give good gifts to his children. He may desire what he knows is that better thing the call from this life. To me, that stands as a, um, maybe an obvious thing, but it helps answer that question inside. For a Christian, I believe we can rest assured in the timing of what God has seen in our affairs. It doesn't mean we become careless and say, well, God is sovereign, so this is going to happen a certain way, and I have no part to play in this. In fact, I think we should pray against evil and against calamity. I believe is much of what the scripture would ask us to do and desire that God, we, we partner with God in coming against 
such things that would befall us from living in a fallen world. We believe in, in divine inter intervention, maybe perhaps more than we realize, because when we pray for the goodness of God, and we pray that God will bless our day, doesn't that mean that we expect him to intervene in some maybe small way? Maybe he's ready to intervene in larger ways as well. Now, I'm not saying there is never such a thing as an untimely death or something we perceive as a calamity. But I believe we have a part to play in interceding against the things that would come our way. You know, Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. That the, God's will would be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Do you think God's will is taking place in heaven? I think to a large extent it, it does. And so the confidence we can have is, is to pray to that end on earth. There's a second perspective that, that helps me, and I think that, that can calculate in, into how we live our lives in light of the possibilities and the fear, and, and we, we may be, be unsettled at the things we see around us. But verse 24 says, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for all your furtherance and joy of faith. It seems that God brought into the, to the um, life of Paul a confidence that he was to remain in this, in this flesh, to take care of the things in this life, at least for a time. That he would serve God in this capacity Later on toward the end of Paul's life, he seemingly gained a perspective that his time of departure was at hand. But while we have the, the calling and, and the perspective of God upon our life that we engage in the things of life, it is often needful that we abide in this life. And God has a purpose for our lives. So it's interesting to me that Paul had that confidence and I assume each of us can walk in that. And when we walk in the confidence that God has a purpose in our lives, it helps take away the fear of those things of what could happen. Because I don't believe God wants us to live in fear. We could fear uh, health issues, um, many things that could cause us stress. But if we believe God has called us into a, a job or a duty, those things can dissipate by the grace of God. The importance of prayer was seen in Matthew chapter 24, verse 20. I invite you 
for just a brief um, thought here. Jesus says in verse 20, Matthew 24, but pray, but pray. Why do we pray? According to Jesus, we pray here, you could say to alter a narrative, to change a narrative. What is that narrative? It is, it is the narrative of the, of the course of a, a, just a fallen world. And we pray to um, affect what the kingdom of darkness would want to manifest in our lives. Pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. I don't know if you've ever thought about what that is about. If Jesus didn't want this to happen, then why didn't he just sovereignly say, okay, it's not going to happen. But he says to pray and to partner with God. And the scene here is, is one of, of a time, uh, a specific time of hardship he's, he's talking about that will, will happen. It will come upon the earth. And so our calling is to, to ask God and beseech God to to deflect. Maybe we won't escape the full ramifications of it, but we can just improve the situation and alter the narrative to some ex extent. It comes about as, as, a, as a realization of our partnership with God and walking with God. Taking now to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Verse 15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, and this is uh, the, the real focal point here. It says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God wants you to be bold when it comes to entering his presence. Entering the, the throne of grace. And you get the idea of this throne room. Of kind of like a courtroom setting where you have God the judge. You have witnesses. You have an advocate. You have a lawyer. And, and you have the Holy Spirit as your advocate, as your teacher. He, the Holy Spirit can be your script writer. He can be your teleprompter, to use modern terms of, of speech writing and the way people go about to say the right things. The Holy Spirit is there to help us do that and to beseech God, and then Jesus, our advocate, um, the blood of Jesus as a testimony, as a witness. We call on the blood of Jesus. Um, we plead the blood of Jesus, I believe is 
is a term that is in the New Testament. And to do this boldly, that is a concept maybe we miss at times to approach God in boldness with that combination of humility and boldness. And we do this for the purpose of obtaining grace and mercy and help in time of deed. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. That's an interesting verse. All the promises of God in him are yes and amen unto the glory of God. God promises mercy and grace. It may show itself in various forms. It doesn't always duplicate what we saw in, a, in, a, in the other fellow's life. But I think of our responsibility to call upon the Lord, call upon the name of the Lord to plead the blood of Jesus in life circumstances, to partner with God in that respect. There is a principle, I believe, that God has set up in this world and with his people that says to the level of your receiving is to be the level of your believing. Think about that. It doesn't mean we won't ever be persecuted or have troubles. John 16, says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The key, I believe, to overcoming our difficulties rests a lot in that idea of being of good cheer. Being happy in the midst of trouble. And we can do that because we know something about God and Jesus and we perceive how they view us in love. And often we just need, I believe, a revelation of how much God loves us in this world his people, his desire for them to come to repentance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That statement says more about God than I think it does about ourselves. John 3.16 has been translated into more than 1,100 languages, so I understand. Turn now to 2 Timothy 4 for a few closing thoughts. 2 Timothy 4. Verses 6, starting verse 6.
Paul says, for I am now ready to be offered and my time of departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, do give me at that day, not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Christian to Glacia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with me, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus. When thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. Many believe that these parchments were written scripture that uh, Paul was referring to here. Um, valuable things that we, um, we benefit from in our day. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his work. Of whom be thou where also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer to man, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Up to this point, it seems like Paul is chronicling and reviewing things at the end of his life. And it's kind of a sad commentary. All men forsook me. It seems like the ending of his life really didn't have the, the good old punch and the, and the, um, the climax it, it should have had. And maybe he entered the end of his life in somewhat a, a discouraged way. But yes, verse 18, and the Lord shall deliver me from ever, every evil work. And will preserve me, I was going to save this verse for the icing on the cake, you know. And it's interesting that Paul could, could say that. The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work. After citing all the evil that he had gone through from Alexander the coppersmith. Some say that that was Paul's thorn in the flesh. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So may we carry with us that same confidence. Steadfast to the end that God will show himself strong in our behalf. He who began a good work in you shall be faithful to complete it. We don't necessarily have the authority to dictate to God how that end will be. But whether it is in death or in life, I believe the call of God is that the life of Christ be magnified in our bodies. We'll ask our song leader to lead us in a song.